So last January at the uh, 2018 Grammys, a little big town country group performed a, a version of their hit song, Better Man, which was up for country song of the year. And the song, which was written, by the way, by Taylor Swift, tells the story from the perspective of a woman who is longing for a relationship that broke down to kind of be back together. And kind of the, the tagline that's repeated multiple times in the song is, I still miss you and I wish you were a better man. Now, I know that whenever it comes to... Uh, Songs like that, that get a lot of traction, there are reasons. And I think one of the reasons that song got so much attention, so much airplay, is that it speaks to a situation that many women resonate with. They have this longing to be in a relationship that's committed, that's loving, that's long. And they sometimes live with a sadness, a deep level sadness, that that doesn't seem to be working out. Now, I've been around long enough to know that whenever a relationship, whether it's a dating relationship or a marriage relationship, struggles, or whenever one breaks down, the fault for that struggle is not 100% on one person and zero on the other, right? There's always a blending. It's, there's never any perfect people in a relationship. And yet, given that is true, I still find myself longing and appreciating and resonating with the theme of Little Big Town's uh, song, Better Man. Because I want to be a better man. And I want men, especially Christ Christian men, to be better men. I think our whole society right now is collectively crying out for better men. The Me Too movement has highlighted horrific examples of men behaving badly. It's like society is going, can't we get some better men around here? In our uh, Tuesday series here in chapels at Heritage, we are in a series on God's original intent for us as men and women. And we've been going back to the early chapters of Genesis to try to see what God had in mind when he designed us as men and women. And the goal of the series is that you and I would come to a more clarified understanding of who we are as men and women and how we are to relate as men and women. Well, this morning, I want to focus on one half of the male-female equation. Today, I want to focus my words to men. And I do that knowing that we're a mixed group here today. Ladies, I mean no disrespect to you by saying I'm going to focus on men today. The reason I'm doing that is the text that we come to in Genesis spotlights men. It highlights men, specifically the challenges men face to live out God's original intent for them. So the passage goes that way. But I also do that because after being a pastor for 30 plus years, I've come to a pretty solid conviction, and it's this. Whenever men become more and more of what God intentionally designed them to be, everyone wins. Women flourish, marriages flourish, churches flourish, communities flourish. And conversely, when men fail to live up to what God intended them to be, everyone suffers. So today, though my remarks are targeted most specifically at men, 
the ramifications touch every single one of us in this room. So my brothers, here's what I'm asking of you today. I'm asking of you to sit up and take this like a man, okay? <laughs> like a better man. Today I have some words from you that are not my words. They echo God's word. And if you will hear them, and if you will heed them by God's grace, you will become more and more of that better man that you want to be and that God's church needs you to be. So let's look at it together, all of us, as we find God's truth recorded and revealed for us in Genesis chapter 4. We've been in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Today we come, we've been in Genesis 3. Today we come to Genesis chapter 4. I want to talk to you about God's original intent for men, about living that out in a fallen world. Let me pray for us and then we'll look at it. Father, this morning as I stand before these brothers and sisters and as I stand before you, mindful that nothing is hidden in your sight, I do want to come humbly and honestly and ask that you would help me to become a better man. Lord, I want that. And I'm praying for my brothers today that each of them, you would stir in their hearts that God-given desire to be the man you meant them to be for the glory of your name, but also for the good of your people, men and women. So I'm praying that today your word would speak with power. Let your word come with power and let us respond very personally. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 4 picks up the narrative after Adam and Eve have sinned and been expelled from the garden. If you look at chapter 3, the last verse of chapter 3, it says, He, God, drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So Adam and Eve are now cast out, and they are, we're told, east of Eden. And then in chapter 4, we pick up the thread, and God talks about what it's like to live outside the garden, what it's like to live east of Eden. And in chapter 4, what's unusual to me, but intentional, is that the, the author, Moses, focuses on men when he gets to what's happening outside the garden. In fact, if you read chapter 4 cover to cover, if you go from verse 1 all the way down to verse 26, you will find that there are 13 different men named spanning at least eight generations. So this compresses a lot of time into one chapter. And the highlight is on men, and specifically, I think the passage is highlighting the challenges men face living east of Eden, the challenges men face when it comes to trying to live out God's original design in a world that's fallen. So what I want to do this morning is I want to walk you through chapter 4, and brothers, I want to highlight for you four challenges that you will face living east of Eden. Four challenges that you will face if you want to live up to God's vision for you as a godly, better man. Four challenges that come to every single one of us. Now, these challenges are not unique specifically to men. Women, you will resonate as I go over these. You'll say, well, I face that one too. And I think you do in many cases. But there's an aspect of this that I think comes out and hits us as men very specifically and very squarely. So let me walk you through the text and show you four challenges, brothers, you're going to have to face. And, and with God's help, you're going to have to win if you're going to become a better man. Here's number one. 
First thing that we're going to find, verses 1, go really down to about verse 6 and 7, is this. Is that east of Eden, a man finds it challenging to live as a worshiper. Like the first challenge we find, and it's specifically shown to be two men struggling with this, is the challenge to live as a worshiper. We were created to worship God, and we still do that even when we've been expelled from the garden. But it's harder now. And we find in verses 1 to 5 the story of two men and their worship. Look at it with me, verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, verse 5, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. We're told here about the first two brothers, Cain and Abel. Cain is a, a tiller of the soil, and so when he brings a, a worship offering, he brings the produce that he has grown. Abel is a keeper of the flock, so when he brings his sacrifice to God, he brings an animal. And we're told in verse 4 that the Lord looks with favor on Abel and his offering, but verse 5, not with, not on, with favor on Cain and his offering. So you go, well, what's with that? Why did one boy's offering seem to be pleasing to God and one boy's or one man's offering seem to be displeasing? What's going on? Well, the text hints at it, but the rest of the Bible kind of fills in the gaps. When we read the rest of the Bible, we come to 1 John 3.12 and it says, Cain belonged to the evil one. Like the John the Apostle says, you know what was going on with Cain? Is he was on the wrong side. He belonged to the evil one. In other words, Cain's heart wasn't in the right place. So when he brought his offering, God, who sees the heart, not just the offering, is able to go, you know what, I don't like that. Because it says, that if, you, if you look carefully at the text, it says in verse 5, but for Cain and his offering. So it wasn't just the offering that was a problem. In fact, it was Cain that was the problem. His heart wasn't in the right place, and that made his offering wrong. Proverbs 21, verse 27 says, The sacrifices of the wicked are detestable to God. So God's not really interested if you just bring something to him if your heart's not in the right place. And you get a hint that Cain's heart was not in the right place in verse 5. For when he, his offering is not received, look at verse 5, it says, So Cain was very angry. And his face fell. Instead of repenting, he starts resenting, right? Instead of humbling his heart, he hardens his heart. He's like, how dare you say my stuff is not as good as my brother's? Now, all of this raises one of the first challenges that we find as men. It's the same challenge that women face, but I'm targeting it on you, brothers. The challenge is this, to live as a worshiper east of Eden, and to make sure your heart is in the right place when you bring your offering to God. See, one of the possibilities that still is true for all of us is that you can go through the motions of worship, right? Like today, we've come here, we've sung songs, we can raise hands, we can smile, we can weep, we can show all this outward emotion, but God, who sees the heart, knows whether or not that's genuine. So one of the challenges I face as a worshiper is keeping my heart congruent 
with my worship. So that when I come to worship God, it is a continuation of my life in God and not an aberration of how I normally live. Because if my heart's not in the right place, then I'm a poser more than a praiser, right? I'm, I'm looking like I'm praising, but I'm just, I'm just more concerned about my image than reflecting God's image. And that's the challenge that a, a man faces east of Eden, is to make sure that there's congruence between what's on the inside and what you do on the outside. So how do you keep your heart in the right place? Well, one of the things that I found helpful personally is to make sure that I start my day every day orienting my heart towards the Lord. So for me, what that looks like is when I get up, first thing I'm pretty much doing is opening this book and saying, Lord, I need to hear from you. I need to talk to you. I need you to kind of remind me who I am and where I'm headed today. And then throughout the day to make sure that worship is a part of how I'm living. And when my heart goes astray, as it does, as yours does, and the God's Spirit begins to convict that instead of getting angry about that, I come back quickly and repent of that and go, Lord, you're right. My heart's not in a good spot right now. Please help it to come back. Thank you for what you've done. Thanks for speaking to me. Keeping a worshipful heart throughout the day. That's the first challenge a man faces is living as a worshiper. So brothers, let me ask you, as I will for each of these challenges. How are you doing when it comes to that one? How are you doing when you're making sure that you live as a worshiper, that what you do externally mirrors what's going on internally? That's the first challenge. Second challenge really comes out in verses 6 and 7, and I would put it this way. East of Eden, a man finds it challenging not only to, to live as a worshiper, but secondly, to learn to be a warrior. A man's going to find it challenging to learn to be a warrior, to be the right kind of warrior. You say, where do you get that? Well, look at verse 6. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Some translations say you must master it. So what, what's going on here? Well, when Cain is confronted by the Lord, the Lord says to Cain, listen, Cain, you got to fight on your hands. And Cain, you got to win this fight. You're going to have to man up right now, and you're going to have to win this fight, and you better win it because if you don't, you're in big trouble. And the fight is clearly there is with sin. You see that? Look at, look at verse 7. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's desires for you, but you must rule over it. So the Lord tells Cain this. Hey, Cain, listen, you have a fight on your hands. You have to fight the serpent who is still running loose, right? We know that chapter 3, he deceived Eve and Adam. You have to fight Satan. You have to fight sin, which is crouching at the door. Sin is pictured kind of like an animal ready to spring, ready to attack. And then he says, then you got to fight selfishness. You got Satan against you. You got sin against you. And you got a selfishness going on there. Cain, you got to fight. So Cain does fight, but he fights the wrong battle, doesn't he? Look at verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. So what Cain does is he does step in. He becomes a bit of a warrior, but he fights the wrong battle and he kills his brother. Isn't it interesting? The first human 
that was ever born to the first parents ends up being a murderer. That's a sad indictment. And, and the spiral of violence continues to descend. In fact, when you get down, we'll see it a little bit later in verse 23, 24, there's a guy named Lemek. And Lemek goes around bragging that he killed a young man who had wounded him. In other words, he's saying, hey, there was this young punk. He wounded me, but I killed him. And he's bragging about that. So violence is getting like it's escalating. When you come to chapter 6, verse 11, look at Genesis 6, 11. This is the story of Noah. It says, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. Violence is just getting out of control. If you come to our day, would you agree with me that we still live in a pretty violent world? And here's the embarrassing thing of it for me as a man. Most of the violence in our world is perpetrated, whether it is assault or abuse, most of it is done by men. Most of the violence in the world is. In other words, if a man doesn't use his strength for good, typically a man uses his strength for himself and he harms other people. Man's going to have to learn to be a warrior. Now, at this point, some people would say, well, wait, wait, wait. Maybe the solution is, is just to tell men, and starting with little boys, look, don't be a warrior. Like, let's, let's lose that narrative. Let's lose that imagery. Let's tame everything down. Let's try to soften everything up because our society is not doing well with men who are out of control. Is that the solution? Well, I'd argue that that's not the best solution. Here's why. The Lord calls Cain to fight. And by the way, the Lord calls men and women to fight, right? You get to Ephesians chapter 6, and all believers are told to put on the armor of God. So in one sense, you can't get away from the fact that we are called to a fight. But here's the second thing, and you can think this one through. It's my conviction that when a man becomes a warrior, he reflects something of the image of God in a way that God meant a man to do it. Exodus chapter 15, verse 3 says this, the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. The Lord is a warrior. And if we are to image God, there is a sense in which one way, not the only way, not the fullness of the way, but one way we image God, especially as men, is by learning to be the right kind of a warrior. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. And I believe that God has made men to somehow be in little what he is in large. We're supposed to image that. I love a book that's called Wild at Heart by a guy named John Eldridge. Listen to what John Eldridge says. He's got little boys when he writes this. He says, capes and swords, camouflage, bandanas, and six shooters. These are the uniforms of boyhood. Little boys yearn to know they are powerful, that they are dangerous, that they are someone to be reckoned with. My boys chew their graham crackers into the shape of handguns at the breakfast table. Every stick or fallen branch is a spear, or better, a bazooka. Despite what many modern educators would say, this is not a psychological disturbance brought on by violent television or chemical imbalance. If we believe that a man is made in the image of God, then we would do well to remember the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name, Exodus 15:3. Little girls do not invent games where bloodshed is a prerequisite for having fun. <laughs> Hockey, for example, was not a feminine creation, nor was boxing. A boy wants to attack something, and so does a man, even if it's only a white ball on a tee. 
He wants to whack it to kingdom come. <laughs> the universal nature of this ought to have convinced us by now. The boy is a warrior. The boy is his name. And those are not boyish antics he is doing. When boys play at war, they are rehearsing their part in a much bigger drama. Do you see what he's arguing? He's saying that God baked into a man something that little boys know. And that is, somehow I'm supposed to be a warrior. And little boys play at that because what Eldridge is saying is they are getting ready for a bigger drama, a bigger battle. I would say one of the challenges that a man faces east of Eden is learning to be the right kind of warrior. Now, please don't misunderstand me, guys. I'm not saying that you should adopt the cultural definition of a warrior. To be a, a biblical kind of warrior in this right way, you don't have to be big and buff and burly. You don't have to bench press your weight. You don't have to look like Conan the Magnificent or uh, the Gladiator or whoever else is, you know, Dwayne the Rock, whatever that guy's name is. You don't have to be that guy, right? Those are cultural images. But what I would say is this, you do have to be a warrior who learns to fight Satan and sin and selfishness. And you've got to be willing to go into a cage match with those things and say, by God's grace, I've got to win this. Because if you don't, you will end up using your strength in selfish, destructive ways. It's happening all around us. God needs better men. So brothers, my challenge to you is this. You've got to, you've got to step up. You've got to grow up. You've got to play your part in the bigger drama. You've got to learn to put on the armor of God. Most mornings of my day, I wake up and I pray through the armor of God and say, today, God, help me to wear the belt of truth. Help me to wear the breastplate of righteousness. Help me to wear the shoes of peace, the helmet of salvation. Help me to pick up the shield of faith and the sword of the spirit. Help me to pray at all times in the spirit because I realize when I step into a day, even when I'm coming to a place like heritage, I'm still stepping into a battleground. And I have an enemy who's after me. And I have selfishness that would like to pull me down. And one of the challenges that a man has to face is to learn to be the right kind of warrior. So learn to live as a worshiper, learn to be a kind of warrior. But that's not all. There's a third challenge. And it comes out as we kind of follow the narrative most clearly in verses 17 to 22. And I put it this way, my brothers. Here's the third challenge you're going to have to face. You're going to have to learn to face this challenge, to labor as a worker. You're going to have to learn to labor as a worker. Now, you were given a job before sin ever entered the world. You remember in Genesis chapter 2, the Lord puts Adam in the garden, and before there's any sin, he says, you've got to guard the garden. You've got to keep the garden. So work is not part of the curse. Work just got harder because of the curse. Genesis 3, thorns and thistles are going to grow. But he says, Adam, when I made you, I've given you a job to do. you got to go to work. On the east of Eden, you still have to go to work. But now you have to learn to be the right kind of worker. And I think it's addressed a little bit, at least, in verses 17 to 22. Look at with me. Verse 17, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Erad, and to Erad... 
Mahujael, and to Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lemek, and Lemek took two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the other Zillah. Ada bore, bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naama. What's fascinating here is we are told about three brothers and one sister. And each of the three brothers, we're told, had a profession. In fact, they were innovators. In fact, each of these three brothers was what you would call an entrepreneur, right? Look at verse 20. There's a guy named Jabal, J-A-B-A-L, and he's the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. So he's the first guy to kind of go into commercial farming. He's got, he's got livestock, and he's the one who's kind of taken that on a bigger scale. And then he's got a brother, verse 21, named Jubal. He's the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. So this guy's an inventor. He makes up instruments, the lyre. He has the patent on the lyre and the, and the pipe. Probably had his own record label. I'm just, just wondering. Maybe he drove around in a stretch limo or something. But he's the guy that took music and started to make instruments that people could then buy and use. They also have a brother named Tubal Cain. He's like Tubal the tool man because he's the forger of all the instruments of bronze and iron. So this guy is the guy who starts inventing different implements that can be used, probably for agricultural, but probably sometimes for military use as well. So here are three brothers, and they're all advancing civilization. They're all developing culture through their jobs, through their day jobs. Now, let me ask you, do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? How many of you would say good thing? How many say bad thing? How many say it? I'm not sure. I think as it's presented, it's not presented in a bad way. In other words, what it's saying is these guys had a challenge and they faced it. They learned to labor as workers. And one of the challenges you will face, whatever line of work God takes you into, is to labor and be excellent, to do good work, to develop it, to take it further, to make it better, to make society better. So that's a good thing. But I think there could be an implied negative in the text. And it comes out most clearly when you contrast chapter 4 with chapter 5. Here's what you find. Chapter 5 is the genealogy of Seth. Chapter 4 is the genealogy of Cain. Cain's line is the one that dies out at the flood. Seth's line is the one that goes on. Noah is part of Seth's line. Now, here's a fascinating thing. I won't take time to read all the way through. But if you read chapter 5, you will find a whole bunch of men's names. And you won't find much about what they did for their day job. What you will find is their name and then something about their family. They had sons and daughters. Next guy, he had sons and daughters. This one had a wife and he had sons and daughters. In other words, the focus is not on their, what they produce, but on kind of their family unit. And it could be that when you go back to chapter 4, here you read about three men who did something pretty impressive with their day job, but there's no mention of family. And it could be an implied contrast to say in chapter 4, these guys were identified with and identified by what they did. 
Chapter 5, you come to people who also find their identity and who they love and who they're with and their family. I put the two together and say this. Brothers, here's the challenge of learning to labor as a worker. It's to do your job well and to keep your work in perspective. I've faced that challenge all my life, to try to do my job well, but to keep my job in proper perspective. You see, if your work becomes your whole horizon, if all you are is what you do, then you can end up putting all your energies into something that's good, but it is not whole. It's not complete. God's vision for a man is broader than that. And if that man has a family, and if that man's part of a community, there's a relational component. So do your job well, but keep your job in perspective. Let me just tell you one way where I, I try to do that. And when I do it, it helps me. I did it this morning. I sit down at the start of my week, and I think through the various roles I have in life. So one of my roles is here at the school. I serve as a professor and president at the school, right? But I have other roles, too. I write down I'm a disciple of the Lord Jesus. That's a role that I have. I have a role that I'm a husband to Linda, and I'm a father to Ryan and Michael and Lindsay. And I write down these roles, and then I ask myself this question. What would the Lord have me do in each of these roles to give something back, to contribute, to do something good for each of these areas? So I write down, it's this area my, as a uh, married man. This is what I want to try by God's grace to do this week. As a father, this is what I'm going to do this week with my children. As a worker, this is what I want to do to, to really move the ball forward at Heritage. And at, when I do that, I start to think more broadly, still doing my work well, but not allowing one part of my work to kind of fill all my horizon. So east of Eden, a man faces the challenges, first of all, to live as a worshiper. Secondly, labor, or to uh, learn to be a warrior. Third, to labor as a worker. And here's the fourth challenge. It comes out in verses 23 and verse 24. A man finds it challenging to love a woman. A man's going to find it challenging to love a woman. You see that come out, the challenge of it, not successfully completed, I would add, in verses 23 and 24. Look at verse 23, 24. We meet this guy, Lemek. And he said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lemek, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lemek's is seventyfold, seventy-sevenfold. So here we find the recorded evidence of the first guy that tries to take the two and make them one. He tries to make three into one, right? He has two wives. Back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, it was pretty clear. A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one. Now you got Lemek, who's saying, no, 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 that's not good enough for me. We got two wives. And then more than that, look at how he talks to his wives. You don't sense this nurturing, caring guy that's really concerned about them. Look at, it's kind of this braggadocia, verse 23. Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lemek, listen to what I say. It's kind of like, hey, all eyes on me, all ears about me. And then he says this, I've killed this young guy, he wounded me, but I took him down. If Cain was this bad, I'm, I'm 77 times better than Cain. So he's just kind of going on and on about himself. And it's the first hint. Remember in Genesis 3.16, I said it was part of the curse when 
the Lord said to Eve, your desire will be for him. There'll be this controlling desire, but he will rule over you. God's intent was never that a man rule over his wife, but that was what was going to happen when men use their strength in wrong ways. And here you have this dude that is ruling over his two wives in a way that doesn't bring any nurturing. Brothers, one of the challenges you have is not so much polygamy, but selfishness. Because selfishness will keep you from loving anyone well, especially if God gives you a wife. One of the big challenges that a man faces is learning to love sacrificially and not selfishly. We're going to see this next week when we come to the New Testament. That God calls a man to use his strength in a sacrificial way to serve others, starting with those closest to him. If he's married, his wife. If he's got kids, his kids. But then expanding out to the church that he serves, the community that he lives in. But one of the challenges that a man's going to face is learning to love well. Now, you may come to the end of this, at the end of this chapter, and you may be saying to yourself as a man, this question, this is a huge question for a lot of men. Do I have what it takes to do that? Right? We, don't, we don't voice that one a lot, but that's an insecurity question that we like, can I do this? Do I have what it takes? And my answer to you, my brothers, is this. No, you don't. But yes, you can. No, you don't, but yes, you can. And I say that because of the last verse in chapter 4. Look at how the verse ends. Look how the chapter ends. To Seth also is born a son, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. It's interesting. That's how the chapter ends. You see all these things, these challenges going on, and you see a lot of guys not successfully hitting the challenge. Cain doesn't do it. Lamech doesn't do it. And the chapter ends, and you're thinking, is there any hope? And people start calling on the name of the Lord. Now, that phrase, to call on the name of the Lord, shows up throughout the Bible, doesn't it? It's a big one. You call on the name of the Lord in worship. There's this idea of worshiping God. I'm publicly proclaiming his name. But as you read through the scripture, calling on the name of the Lord is something you do for salvation. Joel chapter 2, verse 32. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be what? Shall be saved. Paul picks that up in Romans chapter 10, verse 13. Applies it to Jesus and he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus shall be saved. So brothers, sisters, the first thing that you and I have to do is call on the name of the Lord to be saved, right? We call on him, Paul says in in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that Christ, God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And I'm trusting that all of you have come to the place where you've called on the name of the Lord to be saved. Because if you haven't, that's where you have to start. But calling on the name of the Lord is not just for salvation. As you read through the Old Testament and into the New, you find this. Calling on the name of the Lord is also for strength. It's not just for salvation. It's for daily strength. Not just eternal salvation. It's for everyday strength. Psalm 116 says, I love the Lord because he heard my voice. I called on his name. Verse 4 says this. I called on the name of the Lord. Oh, Lord, save me. And he did. In other words, calling on the name of the Lord is what you do when you run up into a challenge that you go, I can't do this one. 
So what do you do? You call on the name of the Lord. Oh, Lord, help me. Oh, Lord, strengthen me. In fact, the psalmist says in Psalm 116, therefore I will call on the, day, on the name of the Lord as long as I live. My brothers, I tell you, tell you what, for me facing these challenges means that I am regularly calling on the name of the Lord for strength. Lord, please help me. Strengthen me today to be a worshiper. Strengthen me to live with authentic worship. Keep my heart in the right place. Lord, please help me. Help me not to wimp out. Help me not to back away from those fights that I know you want me to have. Help me to step up and learn to be a warrior who fights Satan, who fights sin, who fights my own selfishness. Lord, make me that kind of a warrior. Lord, I'm calling on your name. Help me to do my job. Help me to be a worker in the way you want me to be. Lord, let my service at this institution really benefit all the people that come here. Let me do my job well, but let me keep my job in perspective so I know that who I am is not just what I do. And then, Lord, help me to learn to love a woman, the woman you've given me as my wife. But, Lord, beyond that, help me learn to love other women in appropriate and godly ways. So I love my daughter. So I love the women that God places in our churches in ways that are pure but helpful. Help me to give of myself so that they flourish, so that they win. If I'm going to live that kind of life, if I'm going to fulfill God's original vision for me as a man, I'm going to be calling on the name of the Lord for as long as I live. And you will have to do it too. But brothers, if you will do that, if you will learn to call on the name of the Lord for salvation and for strength, then get this, everybody's going to win. Everyone wins. The sisters around you will be better cared for and loved and flourished. The churches that you're a part of will be strengthened. The communities you're a part of will be lifted. We won't live with the scourge of having women to say, yeah, me too, me too, me too. We will have women who can say, well, I know that's true for a lot of them. But the Christian men I know, no, they're not like that. They're godly men. They're better men by God's good grace. Let's pray. Father, I would pray today specifically for my brothers, and I include myself in that circle. Lord, I, I believe our world cries out for a real genuine picture of what you meant a man to be. I believe it cries out for what you meant a picture of what you meant a woman to be. But today as we focused on men, my prayer is this, that you would move each of the men here today to be men who regularly, consistently, earnestly, faithfully call on the name of the Lord, not only for their salvation, but for their strength. And I pray this for the glory of God in raising up a whole host of good and godly and better men. In Jesus' name, amen.